came a long way. That's what the song said. And I could do all things. I could do all things. Yeah, I could do all things. Yeah, yeah, we came a long way. Hey, what's up? What's going on? And welcome to the Be Real Podcast, where we keep it real on social issues, history, news, faith, and everything in between. It's your one-stop podcast with thought-provoking talk and real content. Now, it's time to get real with your host, Brandon Mosley. Yeah, yeah, you know what it is. Swag it out one time for your guy. I could do all things, yeah, yeah, long way, that's what the songs say, you can do all things, yeah, yeah, that's what the songs say, yeah, what's going on, y'all, you can do it all, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, welcome back to the Be Real Podcast, we're back once again, 12th episode Last episode of the first season. I made it a short season for a reason. Um, wanted to get right to it and uh, just try this out and see how we how we like it. So far, so good. Hopefully for you as well. And if you're enjoying this podcast, I believe many of you are. I see the downloads. I appreciate them. Um, please make sure you you go ahead and hit me with a five star, especially if you're listening on um, Apple, because the best way that people can find me is through reviews. So more reviews, more people can find me. Also, make sure you write a review as well. Please, please, please. And share, 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 share. Let people know um, where you're getting your podcast fixed. And um, yeah, thank you very much for the support. But um, we have a jam-packed show, of course. We're dealing with something that is um, still ailing society today, the war on drugs. Yes, that's what we're dealing with today. Um to be honest, um, I think each and every one of us can say we know someone who's been affected um, by the war on drugs, um, either by way of friend, family, associate, um, especially if you live in communities of color. Garrett, that's just what it is. Um, so, yeah, for my for myself, in terms of drugs, I, I, to be straightforward with you, I've never done drugs, never smoked weed, marijuana, however you want to call it, because um, I... You know, I, I saw the effects of drugs in people's lives, and I just was like, I never wanted to mess with it. Um, but I do have a story to tell. I do definitely have a story to tell. Um, so my boy, one of my closest friends, had a birthday party, and we're having a good time, and it was time to get home, and I needed a ride. I'm like, you know, this is beginning of junior year of high school, and um, these guys I kind of knew was like, yeah, I'll give you a ride. I said, man, for sure, let me let me get in. So they said, oh, you can sit in the front. I said, oh, bet, okay, okay. Shotgun without calling it, that's that's amazing. So we're on our way, and um, all of a sudden we see lights behind us. I'm like, dang, bro, what would you do? And um, I think he might have been either driving too fast or something. And this is when he decided to tell me, hey, bro, I don't have my license. And it's like four of us in the car. It's like, bro, you don't have your license? What you mean? Oh, I was supposed to get it this week. I got my permit. I'm like, bro, why you tell me, right? I'm like, man, I'm not. I'm t- All right, bro. Then he said, hey, man, I got some weed in the car. I said, bro, oh, no, man. I, I, I'm thinking like, bro, I got a good image. I'm clean cut. I'm a church going young individual. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to. I'm like, dang. Bro, gonna get me caught up. So they, they um, 
try to hand it to me to throw out the window. I'm like, bro, I'm not, I'm not really trying to touch what's yours. Like what's yours is yours. Um, and we ended up getting the, you know, throwing it out the window and, um, we get pulled over and we we're thinking it's like a true blue, you know, PD officer. It was like, cause we were by some gated communities. It was the like security of the gated community. So we were, I was like, thank God. All right. And uh, he's like, I need your license. And yada, yada, yada. He, he got the flashlight on us. I'm not even looking at that guy. I'm not looking at him all. I'm looking straight. He asked me his name. I'm not even answering. I'm just, you know, I'm not, this is none of my business. I don't, you know, I don't know nothing about nothing. Um, so we find out in the middle of it that, oh, he's not really even a cop like that, but he, he does have at least the power to um, have the police come out and tow us and stuff like that. And he decides to, you know, after we tell him we're, we're right around a corner from home, you know, just giving us a ride home, yada, yada, yada. Um, and he just let us off like, OK, I, I won't if I see this car around here again, I'll, I'll make sure I'll stop you and um, have the police come out and yada, yada, yada. Um, so I, I don't know either. He was like a security guard or a volunteer officer or something like that. But anyways, on our way out, somebody in the backseat was like the Columbia gold, go get it. I said, bro, that's not. It's not cocaine. That's Columbia Ghost cocaine, and that's just some running mill weed. Nobody's going back for that. Take me home, y'all. Do what y'all want to. So I made it home safe. Thank God for that. Um, so yeah, that was my um, not my only experience with drugs, but in terms of someone around that had it and stuff like that. But I've, like I said, I've never um, partaked for many reasons. Um, not Bill Clinton. I can't say I did, or, or Obama. Um, just, uh, I guess I'm a square, huh? But, uh, yeah, when I tell my students I've never done drugs or anything like that, they, they don't believe me. They, they can't believe it. Like everyone's done weed before. Like, nah, bro, not me, not at all. Not in my house. Um, so yeah, um, we're going to be looking at a few things. We're going to be looking at, uh, what actually was the war on drugs? Um, how did it even start? Um, how did it affect communities of color? And what's the difference between the war on drugs today um, versus the one in the 80s? And lastly, what role did it play in Breonna Taylor's death? So that's all we're going to get into. So get ready for that. I'm super excited about this episode. So I have some some great stuff to share with you guys but the thing is i know this is the type of episode that when you're done you're going to want more and and you got to go out there and do some of the research yourself but this is going to get you started on the uh, journey on the history of war of drugs but before we really get into it i want to play you something from from the set from 1968 so go ahead and listen to this In recent years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. At the current rate, the crimes of violence in America will double by 1972. We cannot accept that kind of future for America. We owe it to the decent and law-abiding citizens of America to take the offensive against the criminal forces that threaten their peace and their security, and to rebuild respect for law across this country. I pledge to you, the wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in America. 
So, yeah, that was a campaign commercial for Nixon in 68. Super dark, right? It starts off with some eerie music, and he flashes pictures of, like, um, hippies protesting and stuff like that, and um, it and of people using drugs. Um, looks like they're shooting up heroin and stuff like that. So that's what his platform was. It was like, America's looking lawless right now, so I can fix that. I'm going to be the candidate of law and order, right? So the 60s was crazy already. I mean, a lot of progression in terms of, you know, the civil rights movement, the 64, 65 acts and all that stuff. But it takes a big turn. You know, we have assassination after assassination, of course. You know, we're talking about Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X again. I mean, I'm sorry, um, and Bobby Kennedy. So, I mean, just those names alone, right? But we we have that war in Vietnam that starts, and that's really, I mean, the traditional people that were, were for it, and the young people who were being drafted and, and being affected by the war, you know, they were completely against it. You got the, and you also have, you know, um, Muhammad Ali stepping up, um, not not accepting his role in the military and so forth and so on. And you also have the Black Panthers gaining a lot of power. So by 68, you know, during the Democratic Convention in Chicago, you you have a, you know, protest and the, and the police are trying to stop them from even getting to, they had barricades up to stop them from even getting to the convention. Um, they, they were telling them they couldn't sleep um, or, or make tent homes overnight even though all hotels are completely booked. So they're telling them to get off the streets and they, it just went, they went wild beating people, arresting people. Um, so this is what the sixties was. Right. And you got Nixon saying, I'm, I'm going to take care of this. Right. Um, so with that being said, he already had his mindset to start a war in terms of war on crime. Right. That's what he was first talking about. But by 71, cause he says in the, commercial by 72 crime will be doubled if you know if we don't stop what's going on so by 71 he started to coin the phrase war on drugs so he he started to say and he stated that drug abuse was public enemy number one right and he, he talked about how we had um, veterans coming back from war addicted to their heroin and things of that nature because the vietnam vietnam vets were coming back of course, with PTSD and not understanding it and and they're getting heroin out there in Vietnam and they come back with the same addiction. Right. So this is what we're having. And this is and he said this is going to be a worldwide war. So he started to increase the federal funding for uh, drug control and proposed like strict measures like, guess what? Mandatory prison sentencing. Right. For drug crimes. So by 73, he went he goes all out with an executive order to form the Drug Enforcement Administration as we know of as DEA. So when the DEA started, they only had um, 1,470 special agents. That's it. Um, And the budget was around $75 million. Today, it's roughly 5,000 agents, and the budget is over $2 billion. So you have to ask yourself, like, why did he go after the war on drugs so tough from the beginning. Like why why was that something he wanted to go after? Um and it wasn't it wasn't an altruistic 
um, plan to make the world better, of course. Um, this is what one of his former aides said in 94. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could dis- disrupt these communities. And also, he said, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So we have an official from the Nixon administration pretty much telling us the start of the war on drugs was all about racism and people who are against the war. And the big difference between those who are against the war and black people, of course, um, they could change their mind, right? Um, And the war will end one day. So that would be, you know, they no longer be viewed as an enemy. But if you're black, guess what? You're black forever. So with that being said, with the with the Black Panthers and things of that nature becoming very popular, his goal was to destroy the Black Panthers and destroy all African-American leaders, leadership, um, and use the media as one of the weapons as well. So as we see throughout the, the war on drugs, the media plays a very big role and we'll talk about that so what we see is the war on drugs kind of take a a little bit of hiatus because you know as we as we all know nixon and his um crime caused him to uh lose his presidency and the support of his party and what happens is we we have a hiatus because we have a you know we have issues in america that's bigger than dealing with the war on drugs in people's minds but we have this new guy who beats Carter and his name is Ronald Reagan. Um, we talked about Ronald Reagan a couple times before. And what, what he does is he brings back the war on drugs. Um, by 1984, he has his wife champion the just say no campaign. As we all have heard, especially if you grew up in the, as a kid in the eighties or nineties, you had the dare program, uh, the dare shirt with the line on there. And you just felt cool about getting that shirt. Cops will come in and talk to you about drugs and, Tell you just say no, and that's it. You know that's that was the education. Just say no. We're in fifth grade. You get the certificate. You know you stuck. Like oh, I get a new shirt. The whole nine. Um, but that 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 was the part of the just say no program. Um, so I want I want you to also remember they had a bunch of commercials commercials crazy ones with like Mr. T and everything. Like they had celebrities left and right, but um. There's one commercial that's really famous I want you guys to listen to. Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Every 80s and 90s kid saw that commercial. And I promise you, there wasn't much education about, you know, not using drugs and what can drugs actually do and why people use drugs. It was just simply like, bro, if you use drugs, you're going to like a fried egg, your brain will be. And it was like a fear factor, right? 
And I'm going to be real with y'all. For a lot of people, that did not work. <laughs> like, at all. Like, people were still out there doing their thing. Right? Um, so, it was a failure. And all these Just Say No drug commercials kept coming on. And as a kid, I'm thinking that's all they're actually doing. Like, that's that's, you know... That's the extent of it. But what I found out, you know, when I once I got older and, you know, was able to do my own research, that they're doing a lot more and a lot worse than commercials. In 1986, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which established mandatory minimums for prison sentencing uh, for certain drugs. And the main certain drug happened to be crack cocaine. And crack cocaine, if you was found with five grams of that, you're getting five years, a year for each gram. And for your, for you to have that same amount of time with powder cocaine, you have to have a hundred times more, 500 grams. So a hundred to one ratio in terms of punishment and crime. Um, so that led, let us know now the difference. And we're told that crack was a black drug and black drug only, but it, it was actually a drug of poverty. The thing is that black people in poverty was the ones that are getting caught up the most with it, but um, there was more actually white crack users uh, than black. But we're not told that, and the rest doesn't show that either. But we know cocaine was more of an expensive drug used in um, places where people had money, i.e. like, you know, Hollywood or even in New York right there when we trade stocks and bonds in the bull market. Yeah, Wall Street. So these guys were getting away with it um, with no problems. But the, the crazy thing is that this bill spawned from something. So what happened was in 1986, there was a, a guy by the name of uh, Lynn Bias. Uh, Lynn Bias uh, was drafted by Boston Celtics. Um, played for Maryland, and you know he looked amazing. Looked like he was going to be the next great thing, almost like LeBron James, six eight, six nine, big, strong, fast. Um, had a nice jump shot, everything. You know the guy was it. He got a shoe deal, I, I, I want to say. Um, so he's getting paid. Um, by the play for Boston Celtics, that's a championship caliber team. So he goes and go back and he celebrates and. In the celebration, there's cocaine, and he ends up overdosing and dying. So what happens is a couple of days later, um, we have uh, the Speaker House, um, Tip O'Neill. So Tip is from Massachusetts, so bro's a, a Celtics fan, so he's devastated. So he gets on the, um, the floor of the house and gives an impassionate speech about how we have to do something about drugs. We have to do something about the users, about those who are selling it. We have to take care of business, right? And understand 1986 is, guess what, an election year. So they need something that will grab the headlines, both parties, something that they can get America behind. So what they decided to to do is, really go hard on drugs. They knew that Reagan was going to be with it and the Republicans are going to be with it. So why not? Let's do this. So during the very first debate, there was an episode of a C-SPAN show that I found that people called in. So 
Listen to this caller real quick. Let's see. We have a call already from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You're on. Hello? Uh, I've watched a lot of this uh, rhetoric on this uh, House Bill uh, 5484 today. And I understand that this is an election year and everybody's on the big bandwagon. Even here in the local elections, the, the drugs seem to have taken a, 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 seems to preempt everything else. But I wonder if on a national scale, this, uh, this uh, drug bandwagon that everybody's on isn't to camouflage the uh, ineptitude of the entire congressional and legislative uh, organization to conceal the true problems in this country, such as nobody's railroading uh, to sink the, uh, the foreign imports into the country to put people back to work and uh, the first one thing and the other. If we can see uh, this type of force applied to the various pressure points that would put America back on its feet, then perhaps so many people would need drugs to get over their economic depression. Cole, let me ask you some questions. Were you surprised that the drug legislation, this anti-drug legislation, came along right now? I'm surprised that, that this legislation didn't start in the 1960s when the drug, uh, when the drug movement really started. Uh, I'm really surprised that it's taken this long uh, in one respect. Then on the other hand, I understand the bureaucracy and how slow it can be. I think this legislation uh, is long overdue. However... Uh, on another another vein, uh, Americans aren't welcome most anywhere in the world right now. And you go down to Juan Valdez's place where he's been picking coffee, and you go to bombing his fields and burning them out, and you want to go down to visit. Well, here comes an American, and blah blah blah. And just we're just following the Marines into South America, and I wonder how welcome we're going to be then. Was there anything in that debate today that pleased you, and something that might be actually going to happen to fight? Well, get to see all of the debate. I didn't get to see all of the debate, but the parts that I did see was just uh, mostly rhetoric. It seems to be a waste of money. Uh, I understand through articles that I've read in recent publications, for example, that uh, the Justice Department withdrew a $1 million grant to an organization headed by President Reagan's wife because $700,000 or something couldn't be accounted for. And uh, with that type of leadership, uh, What's going to happen to the $350 million? Okay, well, thank you very much for your comments. Uh, next. So, yeah, we got a Southerner from Baton Rouge calls in onto C-SPAN and pretty much outlines everything that people ended up saying about this war on drugs. Is it a waste of money? It's rhetoric. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to help or solve the issue. And maybe the real problem is the economy. Sheesh. So I commenced to listen to the rest of it. Now, I'll have the link on there for you guys to listen. It's, it's really good TV. Um, there's a lot of good calls that come in. And a lot of them, actually from like California, like Indio, um, Santa Barbara, stuff like that. And most of the people kept saying, this is a waste of money. Why are we doing this? And we're taught in history almost like that. The American public was tired of, of it and, and thought that was a government job. Many people who called in was like, it's not the government's job. And the only person who called in with, you know, something opposite was an older lady saying that people who are caught selling or doing drugs or whatever, something to the nature should um, death penalty or life in prison. And the Democratic 
um, Congress member from New Mexico agreed. That is insane. This is this is what was happening, right? This is what people were thinking. Um, was trying to find something, like he said, for election year. And what we have to realize is like, what was going on in America to cause such a stir in terms of having vast um, numbers of people addicted to drugs? So let's look at, we, we're told for some reason, some people or some sec- sectors of America are told like the Reagan years were like the golden years, right? And for some people, it really was for, for you know, upper crest and higher middle class, even higher middle class for African-Americans actually did well. You know, you got the Bill Cosby show on TV. You got Eddie Murphy's doing doing great prints. I mean, the 80s for African-Americans seem on TV like, man, OK, we're doing OK. But when you dig deep and actually look at it, Reaganomics actually started to cut taxes for the wealthy, of course, um, cut social programs. So the social net. Right. To help and catch people. Um, and the term welfare queens was uh, was coined by our president. Um, so with that being said, he also started to cut the educational budget. So you starting to have uh, decay in a lot of school uh, systems and communities. And what we see is in, in 1983, the black unemployment rate was a whopping 19.5%, nearly 20%. That's the average. It went over 20% in that year, but that was the average, right? And at the same time, white unemployment was at 18, 8.4. So not too bad. So with that being said, the lowest unemployment rate in that decade, the 80s for African-Americans was 11.4, nearly 12%. And for White Americans, 4.5%. So in that decade, on average, African-Americans was two and a half to three times um, the levels of unemployment than white um, Americans. With that being said, if you look at the Great Depression unemployment rates at its height, it was at 24.9%. So the one of the worst economic downfalls in American history, the African-Americans' unemployment at the time of the 80s was fairly close, was literally a, a, a jump skip away at nearly 20%. So understand, it was really bad for people out there, right? You have the poverty rate of nearly 32% in African-American communities compared to 10% in white communities, all right? And some of the reasons why I, I did research why people find themselves addicted to drugs is trauma, financial burdens, mental illness, Career pressures, environmental influences, self-medication, and to feel in control. So you got to think, if you're African-American and you're in the 80s, you have no jobs, no opportunities, no social net, um, education's bad, and your environment is literally becoming you know, infested with drugs and um, gang violence and you don't feel like you're in control of your life, you're probably going to be depressed. You might have mental, you might have a mental illness issue, which you're not going to have support to get because there's no clinics. There's nothing out there for you. So what are you going to do? Self-medicate. You have childhood hurt. You have problems within your life. You have no career. You're going to do drugs. So that that's where we're at, right? And what happens is in the very next year, you got Nancy Reagan talking about just say no. All right, Nancy, if I just say no, um, can you help me get a job? 
right? And that that that's where we're at, right? That's when in '84 when when cracks really exploded, right? Crack you see first in '81, 1980, '81, and by '84 it, it explodes. It's a big deal, right? So here's some lyrics I want to um I want you to hear. I'm gonna say because I don't like to play other people's music. I don't want to get in trouble. You know, you guys know that. So listen, this is from Jay Z. He says this. Blame Reagan for making me into a monster. Blame Oliver North and Iran-Contra. Iran-Contra band that they sponsored. So, instead of me explaining it to you, I'm going to let someone who was in the middle of this whole whole, uh, epidemic explain. Our one and only uh, Rick Ross, not the rapper, the actual real freeway Ricky Ross. One second. And what your role in it and what Blandon's role was in it? Well, my role was that Blandon would bring me drugs to sell to raise money for the Contras. Uh, the Contras was backed by the CIA, which was Ronald Reagan and George Bush. And George Bush's pet peeve, George Bush Sr.'s pet peeve. Uh, they felt that if they lost Nicaragua, that um, Russia would be marching down the streets of the United States. Okay. But where's the Iran part? Well, they sold guns to Iran and took the money and gave it to the Contras. But then they were also selling drugs. Well, they were allowing drugs to pass through into America and using that money and putting it to the Contras as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But the initial money come from Iran. Because the uh, Congress had said that they couldn't give the Contras any money. So they had to get it from a source that nobody would know about. It, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's so much there. You know, it, you, get, you really got to do your homework. And then, you know, they also had the hostages in Iran that Ronald Reagan was able to get loose because he was going to give them weapons for the hostages along with getting some money. How much of this did you actually know about? None. So, I learned so, all this while I was in jail. Okay, so when you were actually selling drugs and so forth, did, did it seem... I didn't care about Iran. Yeah. You didn't care about... None of that stuff. The man. Contras in Nicaragua, nothing. You were just, you were just selling drugs. And man, let's make some money. All this is happening, and the CIA is actually overlooking this whole process. Right? From what I understand. From what you understand. Yeah. I didn't see the CIA doing it, but, you know, they came back and said, yeah, we were, we were watching them. We okay. were helping them. So, yeah, CIA, Reagan, Oliver North. It's mm. a lot we got to say. Um, so understand this. Reagan um, was big anti-communist and big anti-Cuba, anti-Russia, so what we see in in you know Central America and Nicaragua, we have a group that is sponsored by uh Cuba, the Sandinistas, right? And these are they were running the government down there, and Reagan didn't like that. And Reagan saw a group in the Contras and he said morally they were equivalent to our founding fathers of America. And these people were running drugs, cocaine. And what happens was in, in 1982, Congress blocked, and this is a you know, Democrat-led um, in the House, I believe at the time, 
led the uh, Bolin Act that would prevent giving any money to the Contras because of the use of selling drugs, right? So Reagan says to his cabinet, a figure a way out to get these people money. So some of the ways they figured out was um, through the hostage deal that happened with um, in Iran again, not the first one in, in, in you know, 79, 80. We're talking about, I believe, about 85, you know, airplane full of people. So he claims they're going to give him $30 million. They end up giving them $12 million. They give the rest of the Contras, also sells them weapons, take the money and also give the Contras, right? Then on top of all that, they're taking the drugs that the Contras are having, that they have, and, fun- and funneling it to, the, to America through the CIA, um, to flood the streets um, first in L.A. And that's where Freeway Ricky Ross comes to play. So this is all documented. You can do your research. I'll have I'll have a couple um, links if you want to look at the look at a, a quick little video that kind of talks about it. Um, that the History Channel kind of kind of waters down, but it, it's enough to get you started. But understand this is what was happening. Right. And what this bill did, it led to the change of policing. So we have to ask yourself, like, what was going on in Reagan's mind? Like, literally, like, you know, I understand there's theories that he wasn't really doing much at the time and other people was running the country in essence for him. But no, this guy was the president on watch. He, he knew exactly what was going on. This almost destroyed his presidency, um, especially when Oliver North um came before Congress and, and, and testified. But I have an excerpt from one of the meetings between Reagan and his um, his cabinet. So listen to this. It's doing real damage out there. And I think you know it. So my question to you is, how you sleeping at night, son? Like a baby. <laughs> that was actually an excerpt from uh, Snowfall, a show that actually um, some say is very, um, very closely based off uh, Freeway with Ricky Ross and his connection with the CIA. Um, the joke is really that everyone knew when it comes to Reagan, he was in bed by like eight or nine o'clock as the president of the United States. And I can just imagine someone saying like, should we be doing this president and how you feel about it? I feel fine. I'm sleeping like a baby like this. You got to understand, like literally flooding the streets of, of black and brown communities with drugs and turn around and declare a war on drugs. Like how hypocritical is that? Think about it. The reason why we a the reason why we have out so much drugs here is because the CIA is flooding the market, and that's why they're coming. That's why they're getting it really cheap. CIA was selling it very cheap to Ricky Ross. Then on top of that, because of your policies, a lot of these people are, have lost jobs, and you know things aren't going very well for them. So they turn to drugs. Then you turn around and wage a war on drugs so let's look at what it does for um, policing in terms of LAPD 
It's been 18 years since the war on drugs was declared. Newly elected President George H.W. Bush has been in office seven months when he addresses the nation live on TV. This is crack cocaine. It's as innocent looking as candy. Wait, what? Innocent as candy? Bro, what? But it's turning our cities into battle zones. In the early 90s, the flow of cocaine coming into LA via Mexico has made the city the center of the crack cocaine epidemic. Battles over the crack trade turn the streets into a war zone. LA County sees over 2,500 murders in 1992, over seven a day. In charge of stopping the violence, Daryl Gates, LA's hard as nails top cop. I hate this narrative. Are you serious? This is the same Daryl Gates that said this. And some blacks, talking about, of course, the chokehold, and some blacks, when the hold is applied, the veins or arteries do not open up as fast as they do in normal people. The same Daryl Gates, who also was at a, a fundraiser when the 92 rights went started. The same Daryl Gates who told all the police officers, don't go back in there. The same Daryl Gates who've been known to be uh, racist. Tough as nails? Hmm. We have a war, a shooting war, not in the Middle East right now. We have it on the streets of every major city in this country. And you know who's feeding and supporting the enemy? The casual drug user. Gates creates an elite paramilitary unit he calls Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums, or CRASH. Gates launches raids with military names like Operation Hammer. In one weekend, nearly 1,500 people are rounded up and arrested. Dozens of officers raid apartment buildings, punching in walls, even leaving their own graffiti on the sides of buildings. The Los Angeles Police Department up under Daryl Gates, they was kind of looked at as gang members themselves. I mean, it's like, man, they was untouchables. The story of the militarization of American policing begins in many ways in Los Angeles. That is the first police department to start incorporating the methods of counterinsurgency from America's foreign wars directly into policing. The police were being told for now 20 years that they were fighting a war, that more and more of the public was the enemy, and thus war is the appropriate set of methodology. The country was given a choice, and what happened was it doubled down on the war on drugs. So, yeah, that's a problem. Um, if you guys ever seen Straight Outta Compton, you probably know the opening scene with Eazy-E and a knock, uh, a no-knock warrant, and they're using military gear. So in 1981, the very first um, crack user in America was arrested, at least on the books that we know of. And that happened in uh, South L.A. So this is um, why L.A. was kind of like the first to started to push with the, the SWAT teams 
and would crash. Um, and after the 86 bill, they're getting a lot of money and handy down military use equipment um, to become their own little military, militarizing the police. Um, the police is the police department is already a paramilitary um, entity. So in their mind, it just made sense to start having tanks. And Daryl Gates likened L.A. to pretty much like the Middle East. He said, we're not, you know, this this is not the Middle East we're talking about, but there's a war going on right in the middle of L.A. Right. Kept telling the American people it's a war zone. That these people are enemies and the person who's paying for this and a part of the problem is the casual drug user. So the drug user they have no sympathy for that person. That person is an enemy. Okay. Um, and the problem with that is that creates higher rates of uh, police brutality and drug related arrests. Um, during the eighties, you had a lot of um, African Americans and Mexican Americans and just um, black and brown people in general actually dying at the hands of the police with using the um, uh, chokehold. And end up being banned, and that's where one that quote, one of those quotes come from when he was trying to fight to keep it. Um, and for some reason, a lot of LAPD they they were trained that you know if there was a guy on PCP, the only way you can stop him is with a chokehold. Or they think, or they they were taught that most people who who in their mind was um, not trying to cooperate, they were probably on PCP, so they're they're super strong and they're dangerous. So you're gonna have to lay them out. By a chokehold, so dozens and dozens of people died in the um, late seventies, early eighties um, by using the chokehold. Um, so yeah, that's the LAPD that we're talking about of the eighties when they're given military gear, the batons and things of that nature. So they started using the batons, the metal ones, uh, more, and that's where we get the Rodney King of ninety two. Okay, so. We have the president of the United States holding a bag of crack cocaine that they claimed he purchased around a corner from the um, White House. And they might have because around a corner from the White House is fairly tough. Um, but that but with that being said, um, by the end of all this, the 86 bill with the mandatory sentencing left a, a vacuum of kids. Right. And what happens is um, you have a stress on the foster care program. So you're just allowing some people who shouldn't receive these foster children. Um, they're receiving them because there's so many to place. So therefore, that's when abuse happens, neglect and things of that nature. And they were worse off uh, than before. Um, with that being said, drug related arrests skyrockets. Um, and we see a lot of problems happening. So. In 91, you have the the peak of, of crime in America. And what Democrats wanted to do, Bill Clinton, he wanted to seem like he was tough on crime. Because for years, they were losing um, elections based off of, I mean, you had to think three, three terms in a row, 12 years straight. And before then, you had, you know, two of Nixon, right? So you got a lot of years of losing if you're a Democrat. And one of the reasons is because, you know, people like Nixon and 
Reagan and even Bush used the tough on crime idea, right? And that's where they were at. So with that being said, the 94 crime bill happens, right? And with the 94 crime bill, you have bipartisan support, right? Because they add in, you know, something that's important, the the Violence Against Women's Act and the ban on 19 different semi-automatic guns. But the devil's in the details. So the real detail was $12 billion for truth and sentencing laws uh, that would pay states to uh, keep prisoners in jail up to 85% of their time and also if they adopted tougher laws, right? I.e. California did that. So you also received more cops. And because of that, because of this bill, uh, nonviolent and also because of um, the bill in 86, nonviolent drug uh, offenses um, for people to be incarcerated for skyrocketed from 1980 at only 50,000 and by 1997, 400,000. Okay, and in 95, 13.2 billion dollars were allocated to the U.S. drug policy. All right. And from 1980 to 1997, drug arrests um, per year was 1.5 million. Okay. And since 1971, we spent on this war $1 trillion. Okay. So, and the craziest thing is there has been no change in drug use since 1971 in terms of the statistics. So this war was a failure. Okay. So looking at the the war on drugs today, we have, um, I got a couple lines from J. Cole. He says, now we push pills and sell heroin, heroin to Billy. Now, Billy mama went to the judge to pardon his addiction. How many black addicts that got caught up in the system with no sob stories on your primetime television. I can smell a blatant contradiction. Man, listen. Um, so there was a stark comparisons between the way the media treated crack cocaine of the 80s compared to o- opioids of today. So the New York Times, one of their headlines during that time um, used new violence seen in users of cocaine and also had major stories on crack babies and the use of crack in urban communities. All right. And many stories that would say that these babies would become hyper violent one day and will turn into super predators. Okay. This is what they're saying. And this idea didn't start with the New York Times in the 80s, but actually back in 1914, the New York Times headline was this Negro cocaine fiends are a new Southern menace. Remember, we talked about the black on black crime and how media and also doctors and physicians would create this narrative that African-Americans were dangerous that was coming from the South to prevent them from to come to the north or make it tough tough on them when they got there. Well, they had a physician that claimed in this news story from 1914 that cocaine would make black men uniquely violent and even impervious to bullets. So, aka a super negro. That's what they're saying, right? And 
that with this drug, they're going to be too strong and too dangerous, right? And now you look at New York Times headlines for what's going on today, and the headlines reads as follows. In heroin crisis, white families seek gentle war on drugs. So it's no longer just a war, it's a crisis. Use the words like epidemic, right? Um, Donald Trump even created an opioid uh, commission with Governor Chris Christie at one point. And he was one of the people who had a very passionate speech where he used words such as America must treat addiction as a medical issue. He also goes on to say, we need to start treating people in the country, not gelling them. Hmm, that's, that's, that's very different than some of the stuff we heard in the 80s and, and the 90s. And he said, and, and, and here's the deal. Instead of an anti-drug bill um, or a crime bill, the opioid epidemic, as they call it, um, receives the 21st Century Cures Act. Sounds so much better, right? That allocates a billion dollars towards treatment over the two years, right? Over two years. Um, crack was seen as a moral failure, right? If you became addicted to it and that these people needed to go to jail. And But now opioid, opioid users are seen as troubled people who need help. Right. The narrative has changed completely and the narrative has changed completely because the people who are being affected by by opioids and heroin today are the soccer moms of America It's middle America, white people. Right. And now people who are in Congress, in the Senate, um, our own president of the United States can see themselves in those people. But before, when those people were black on drugs, they couldn't see themselves in there, in them. They just saw them as too different, as violent, as a problem, and they're morally incorrect. And that's a, a them problem. We need to put them in jail. And that's the only way we can fix them. Right. And if instead of war, waging a war on, on crime and making black people the enemy and the face of crack cocaine, instead of doing that, if they would have treated people and created a infrastructure for this, we might not be seeing the, the deaths that we see in opioid use today. We might not be seeing this form of addiction today because we would have the infrastructure for the help that these people do actually need. And maybe we'll also have an infrastructure to help with the coronavirus, because maybe we'll have more clinics and more doctors and nurses in these communities of color. Right. So this is what the war on drugs has done. And this is the narrative that has been changed. So to end the episode, I want to talk about Brianna Taylor. Her death was beyond unjust and what's happening and what the attorney general is doing in, in Kentucky is, is clearly a problem. Um, and you see how people of color are being treated in America, um, even in death. But understand this, the no knock warrant is totally from the war on drugs. She became and is a victim of the war on drugs. Understand this, that these warrants um, allow police officers to come into people's homes without ever announcing them in the middle of a night, right? And this all stems from a couple Supreme Court cases like Curvy, California, 
right? Where officers went into the Kerr's apartment, a married, married couple apartment, um, and entered in without a, a warrant and used a pass key um, that was supplied by the building manager and observed a, a brick-shaped package that had marijuana in it, okay? And they and the cop got off with it, even, even a couple years before with the Map v. Ohio case, right? Then we see a couple other cases, and you guys have to look at these up yourself because I, I, we're running out of time. Wilson v. Arkansas and Richard v. Uh, Wisconsin. And what all three of these cases did, it gave the power to the local um, judge to decide if a warrant, a no-knock warrant would be um, suffice. If if giving this officer, the officer or the PD, that power because of danger of, you know, possibly trying to hide or destroy evidence or just feeling endangered. But we find out no-knock warrants is dangerous, period. And they're dangerous because when someone comes in your home unannounced, that creates a sense of fear, creates a reaction that can be deadly. So what happens in these no-knock warrants and the stats, we show that law enforcement are are normally coming in um, hyper-aggressive and normally um, violence does occur. So as we saw like in, in the from the excerpt from earlier, how the LAPD would come in knocking down walls, busting through walls and, and, and breaking windows and tearing people places completely up. Same thing would happen with all no, no knock warrants normally. And we find out that judges um, are granting these search warrants fairly easy in Denver in 2000, only five of those knock warrants were denied out of 163. Okay. in little rock, Arkansas, in 2018, out of 105, only three wasn't approved. So it it shows it's pretty easy. And a report from 2014 from the ACLU, they analyzed 800 SWAT um, deployments involving no knock or quick knock, meaning just quickly announce and run right in. Um, 62% of those were for drug searches. Okay. And out of those 62%, only um, they only found drugs. 25% of the time, nothing 36% of the time. And the other 29% wasn't reported. I wonder why. Um, the New York times reported that at least 94 uh, civilians and 12 law enforcement died in no knock raids, um, in the U S during 2010 through 2016. Okay. Um, in 2014, here's a story, um, in Georgia, the police, uh, threw a flash, grenade into a room with a 19 month old child that child was placed on a medical in a medically induced coma okay um and in 2010 in detroit a seven-year-old was shot dead um during one of these no knock warrants these are deadly okay um and what we find out that with the same aclu report 68 percent of the no knock searches was for black and brown people Okay, so once again, disproportionately affecting people of color. This is a war on drugs. And lastly, in May 2011, a 26 year old Iraq veteran by the name of Jose Garena was shot 71 times in front of his wife and four year old daughter. Police claims uh, of him being a drug trafficker was never uh, proven and they ended up paying his family three point eight million dollars. So. 
it's safe to say Breonna Taylor was a victim of these searches. She was a victim of a war of the war on drugs. She was a victim from 1971 um, with Nixon and with Reagan, with Bush, with with Clinton and so forth, with us allowing this to continue to happen. These no knock searches continue to allow this war on drugs. It's not successful. It has never been successful. And we see it through the violence, through the death, through the murder of innocent people at the hands of law enforcement. Welcome to another Be Inspired moment. And I want to talk to you about success and failure. Um, Sometimes life will give you opportunities to be great. But at the same time, you will feel a fear of failure that will hold you back. How can greatness occur in your life if your anxiety is greater than the desire to succeed? Your fear is just simply the Wizard of Oz. And it's just smoke and mirrors with loudspeakers. Peek behind that curtain and you'll see the fear is unfounded. But your chance for success is real. So don't allow what you think you see or the way you feel about failure to prevent you from moving forward. Drop the anxiety, drop the fear, have the faith, and I believe you can do all things. In my closing remarks, I just want to simply say, I'm sorry, Breonna Taylor. I'm sorry that the justice you deserve is being kept from you and your family. That the $12 million will never replace your life. It will never replace the things you could have done on this earth. I'm sorry. And for the district attorney of Kentucky, I hope, I hope you will see the errors of your ways. It's time for change and it's time to vote. So make sure you register to vote and make sure you get out there to the polls because at the end of the day, Our vote matters much more than just the next couple of years. It matters a whole generation. So with that being said, it's time to end the war on drugs. And it's time to show compassion to the people who are losing their lives because of it. Thank you. Came a long way, that's what the song say. And I could do all things, I could do all things, yeah, I could do all things, yeah, yeah, we came a long way, that's what the song say, and I could do all things, I could do all things, I can do all things, yeah, yeah. I'm not afraid of the moment, I'm not afraid I can